We are back in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. And let me take this opportunity to remind you that uh, we are working through difficult material as we go through the book of Revelation. And it requires a little extra effort from all of us to make the most of it. And the more that you can familiarize yourself with the passage of the week in anticipation of the sermon, the more you're going to get out of each of these sermons. I don't want anyone to feel lost. And I'm working hard to understand and explain this difficult book. But you can help me by helping yourself. Each week's passage is listed on our website, and I urge you to stay engaged as much as you can in where we've been, and where we are, and where we're going in this series. Now we're going to read Revelation 8, 2 to 12. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given more incense, I'm sorry, he was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. All the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, lightning, sorry, thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood that were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. 
Well, this is one of those passages where I'm not even sure I need to say anything. It's just so clear and obvious, everything that's going on. I might as well just sit down and ask you to meditate on what you've heard and, and, uh, and apply it to your life. Um, but rather, before we even dive into this passage, there are six things that we've already talked about in the book of Revelation that we need to remember because they're important to help us understand what we're dealing with today. So I'm going to do some review now, but very selective review. Only the things that we especially need to know just to grapple with this passage. The first one is in the vision of Jesus that John has in the end of chapter 1 in verse 12 and 13. Jesus is depicted as a high priest who is serving in the temple. And introducing the seven angels here in Revelation 8-2, we're told that there was another angel. So we're told there are seven angels with trumpets. And then we're told there's another angel. And he's standing at the altar offering incense, which was the prayers of the saints. Well, this other angel in 8.3 may well be Jesus. In fact, I think likely is Jesus. This angel is serving in the heavenly temple like a priest, just like Jesus did in the vision of Revelation 1. And later, Jesus is referred to as an angel in chapter 10, verse 1. And that's hinted at or implied also in 14.14 and following. And this would make sense. Because this angel is receiving the prayers of the saints. And then in response to them, he's casting these judgments down upon the earth. Signaled by this blowing of the seven trumpets. So that's the first thing I want to remind you of that part of the vision in Revelation 1. Then in Revelation 1.20, we're told about the seven angels of the seven churches. And then in 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, each of those angels, each of those seven letters is written to the angel of that church. So there are seven angels of the seven churches that receive the letter. So um, it seems to me that um, it's important that we recognize that these seven angels are those seven angels. Because when John introduces them, he said, doesn't say, then I saw seven angels. He doesn't say that. He says, then I saw these seven angels. As if we're supposed to know who these angels are. And the only seven angels up to this point are those seven angels that are spoken of in 120 who stand before God. Then, thirdly, is the opening of the seven seals. Now before the retreat, we finished the opening of the seven seals. Today we begin the sounding of the seven trumpets. We saw that the opening of the seven seals, each of them was initiated by the Lamb and came by order of the throne of God. Now, similarly, the seven trumpets blown by the seven angels are in response to the prayers of God's people, the saints. 
Now, we've talked about the cyclical nature of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. How each, of, each tells us a similar story and seems to recapitulate to some extent what has gone before. Especially, there's a lot of parallel between the first four trumpets, I'm sorry, between the first four seals and the first four trumpets. The first four trumpets then, like the first four seals, describe what God has decreed to happen during the period of time between the first coming of Christ and his final coming at the end of history. So it's the description of the world in our era, the era in which we live. Remember the first four seals depicted four horsemen wreaking havoc upon the earth in the form of conflict, famine, disease, and death. And now similarly, these four trumpets depict more havoc wreaked upon the earth, this time more in the language of natural disasters. Hail, lightning, forest fires, volcano perhaps, if that's what the mountain filled with fire falling into the sea is. Asteroid, if that's what the star that falls to the earth is. Darkness. The first four seals inform us that life on earth during this era will be filled with difficulties. But the first four trumpets give us more information. They not only reaffirm the reality of earthly hardships, but they take it further by depicting the partial deconstruction of the cosmos. And they offer us more understanding as to God's strategy and purpose for hardships. Fourthly, when we talked about the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, we saw it was the prayers of the saints before the altar in heaven, praying, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? You remember that. Well, these prayers that we saw in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, these prayers are referred to here again in our passage in 8, 3 and 4. In fact, when the blowing of the four trumpets follows these, the description of these prayers, it seems that the judgments that these trumpets describe come as a result of the prayers of the saints. So, not only are these calamities of the world ultimately a result of God's decree, but now we see that they are actually also answers to the prayers of his people. Now, fifthly, in the sixth seal, describing the final judgment day, we read that the sun became black, the full moon became like blood. This is in Revelation 6, 12 to 14. The sun became black, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the sky vanished like a scroll. 
And then here, two chapters later in chapter 8, in the fourth trumpet, we read, a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. So, in chapter 6, the light of these bodies is completely eliminated, these heavenly bodies. It's completely eliminated. And yet two chapters later, in chapter 8, the light of these heavenly bodies is just partially eliminated. Just a third. This shows us that these visions are not laid out for us in chronological order. The order they come to us in the book of Revelation is not necessarily the order in which they occur in history. And this reaffirms what we referred to earlier as the cyclical nature of the book of Revelation. If you could, you know, if you met a non-believer who'd never read the Bible before and you said, you should read the New Testament, you gave him a copy of the New Testament, and he starts out and he starts reading the, the Gospel of Matthew. And he reads about the, the birth of Christ and then the life of Christ and then the death of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ. And then he turns over to the next book and begins to read Mark. He would be wrong to assume that the things which happen early in the book of Mark happened after the end of Matthew. No, it doesn't take a lot of knowledge of the Bible to realize this is another account of the same story. It's different in many ways. It includes things that weren't included. It leaves out things and embellishes, it adds you know, details of other things that the both stories include. But the fact is all four tell the same basic story. That's the way it is, I think, with these cycles in the book of Revelation. And then the final thing that I'd like us to notice that we've already covered is that here we can see this again in another example, the same principle of the recapitulation of what we've already seen in uh, when the, God's people are sealed in the beginning eight verses of chapter seven. Remember that story when uh, the God's the saints were sealed so that they would not suffer the harmful effects of the plagues that were going to be called down upon the earth. And but it says that they would not that they'd be protected from the plagues on the earth, the sea, and the trees. Okay? Earth, sea, and trees. But in all of the seven the opening of the seven seals, there's, there are plenty of plagues that are called out upon the earth, but there's never any plagues called out upon the seas or the trees. But now we come to the trumpets, and there, lo and behold, there are curses brought upon the sea and the trees as well as the earth. So the point is this. We see that this is not linear. This is not laid out for us in chronological order. The sealing of the saints covers not only the calamities of the seven seals, but 
also the calamity of the seven trumpets. Believers are protected from it all. Believers suffer just like the people of earth, but unlike the people of the earth, believers are protected from any harm done by the suffering. Okay, so that is six things that we've already covered that are important in the interpretation of this portion. But now let's talk about a little bit more about the interpretation of this passage. Uh, Because there's other things in the Bible that are important for us to know to interpret this passage as well. Not just these six things earlier in the book of Revelation. Often in the Bible there is a scripture key which is needed to unlock a given passage. For instance, when Jesus said in John 1.51, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you don't know the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, you won't be able to understand that passage. And a young believer might not know about this connection. And he reads this and is baffled. And someone needs to point to him, oh, this is referring back to the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. And he reads it and he sees it, aha, now it makes sense. Well, this kind of thing is especially true in the book of Revelation. And for this passage here in Revelation 8, there are actually at least two Old Testament stories which this this passage itself directs us to in order to understand what's going on here. The first of these passages, well, is the story of the sounding of the trumpets on the seventh day in the story of Jericho in Joshua 6. Remember when they walked around the city for seven days? That story. The other one is the story of the ten plagues in the days of Moses in Exodus 7 to 10. Now, in the summer of 2021, I preached a series of 11 sermons on Old Testament stories which help us to understand where we are in history and what our calling is at this point in God's plan. We talked about Noah's Ark about Abraham, about Moses, about Israel in the wilderness, and seven other stories. Now, there are many other stories we could have talked about, like the story of the ten plagues and the story of Jericho. But our passage today makes use of both of these stories signaling to us that these two stories give us guidance and help us understand what's happening in the world around us and how we're supposed to think about it and about our lives in this present context. So now I'd like to do that. I would like to think about the first four trumpets described in Revelation 8 in light of the stories concerning the conquering of Jericho and the ten plagues. So let's start with Jericho. You remember what happened in Jericho. 
God told his people Israel to walk around the city of Jericho. This is the first thing after they come across the Jordan River into the promised land. The first part of the conquest of this new land that God had given them. And uh, he told his people to walk around the city each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were to walk around it seven times. And seven priests were to blow seven trumpets. And the wall of the city would fall down flat. Now, by giving John this vision of the blowing of seven trumpets, it seems to me God is drawing our attention back to the story of what happened in Jericho. And telling us that we are in a similar situation as the Israelites who had surrounded Jericho. Now, how is our situation similar to theirs then? Well, just as the, the, uh, the world around them, society around them, the Israelites was hostile and unwelcoming to the God of Israel and to God's people, so it is for us. But the call of God upon his people is not to just survive not to go off and hide somewhere from the dangers of the world which is really what the uh, the ten spies wanted to do remember when they saw the uh, promised land they wanted to run and hide from the dangers but no that's not what God's calling is to us but we are seeking God's kingdom and we are praying for the coming of God's kingdom. And so we're not to uh, hide, but we are to pray and to obey God in faith and in hope that he is going to triumph. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That very familiar passage. But one thing that's implied in that passage that a lot of times people don't see is that it implies that we as the church are on the offensive and not on the defensive. It doesn't say that, that the world's arrows and swords or the, the arrows and swords of hell would not prevail against us. As if we're hiding with shields, trying to protect ourselves from their attacks. No, it's their gates that won't prevail. We are on the offense attacking the city and the gates of hell won't prevail. So we are in a battle and we are on the offensive. Or to say it better, Jesus is the new and greater Joshua. And the battle is the Lord's. As a Jericho, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we wait for the Lord to fight for us from heaven. In fact, the name Jesus comes from the Greek Jesus, which is Greek for the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is the Hebrew version of Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus are the same name, just in two different languages, Hebrew and Greek. And just as the people of Jericho were petrified by the Israelites, by what they were doing and by their presence around their city, you can see that in Joshua 2.9, so the people of the world are not just antagonistic 
toward Jesus and his people. They are afraid of Jesus and his people. And really, they're right to be. They are correct to be afraid. Their city is about to be ruined. The world shouldn't be afraid of Christians trying to pass laws based on biblical morality. They should be afraid of Christians proclaiming the gospel and Christians praying that his kingdom would come. Like the first six trips around Jericho in the six days before the final day, the first six trumpets in Revelation 8 and 9 are preliminary, anticipating the final day, the final judgment coming on the seventh day, which the seventh um, trumpet doesn't occur until Revelation 11. Jesus said that, they are, that these days are like birth pangs which anticipate and prepare for a birth, but are not actually the birth. He says that in Matthew 24, 6 to 8. And at the end of the seven days, at the end of the, the, the week of struggle, the trumpet will sound, as we're told in the New Testament, in three different places, the walls of the great city of the world will fall down, and Yeshua will return, and every knee will bow. This gives us great comfort and assurance. For the present disturbances in the world are not a sign that the events are out of God's control, but are merely the beginning of his great triumph and preparing for a great new birth. Now let's talk about the story of the ten plagues. A few generations after Joseph rescued Egypt from seven years of famine, the Egyptians forgot about Joseph and enslaved his people, the Israelites. Then, about 400 years later, God heard the cries of his suffering people and raised up Moses to deliver them from Egypt. When Moses came to confront Pharaoh and call him to let the people go, Pharaoh refused. And so God sent ten plagues upon Egypt, all building up to the grand finale of what happened at the Red Sea, where God delivered his people through the sea and then destroyed the Egyptians in that same sea. So, what do the ten plagues have to do with our passage? Well, it seems obvious that the first five trumpets in Revelation 8 and 9 are patterned after the plagues inflicted upon the Egyptians. There's hail and fire, the sea turned to blood, fish dying, undrinkable water, darkness, locusts. So again, God seems to be directing our attention to the story of the ten plagues here in Revelation 8 to help us interpret this passage about the judgments which come upon the world and when the first trumpets are blown. He, call, he wants us to see that in one sense we are reliving the story of the Exodus. 
just as God heard the cries of his people Israel when they were in Egypt and raised up Moses to deliver them and used the ten plagues to do so in our era in our world God has also heard the prayers of his suffering people and in answer to those prayers has raised up a new and greater Moses to deliver us and is bringing plagues against our enemies as part of the process of this deliverance. Just as the Israelites would not have been delivered from slavery without the ten plagues, just as Paul and Silas would not have been delivered from prison without the earthquake, so we will not be delivered without these calamities being poured out upon the earth. The world's calamities are not just random tragedies occurring to innocent people. They're part of God's program of judgment upon the world. And the deliverance of his people and the triumph of his own power and glory. But now from our vantage point, we look back at the story of the Exodus and it all makes sense. We say... Wow, what a fantastic victory. But this beautiful process of deliverance and triumph took all kinds of patience, endurance, and tenacity, and faith that God knew what he was doing and that he would ultimately come through for his people. And so it is with us. The Lord is in the process of working out a dramatic, triumphant victory. But like every battle, it's messy and stressful from the point of view of soldiers on the battlefield. And it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. In order for this trying process to be brought to its glorious end, we must stand ready to be disturbed. God doesn't allow his people to dwell in ease and pleasantness. He keeps disturbing the peace. God loves us too much to let us dwell in a cocoon of earthly security. If he did, we would grow so easily satisfied with the now. And satisfaction with the now is like drinking poison. It's deadly. So God keeps intruding into our satisfaction, acting against it, undermining it, compromising it, at times seemingly ruining it. I remember many times driving home from church when we had children, little ones, and I had one hand on the steering wheel and one hand on the child behind me who was in a car seat, who was, everything in him wanted to fall asleep. But the fact is, he didn't need a one minute snooze on the way home from church. And if he fell asleep in the car on the way home, that's all he would get. He needed a nice, long, refreshing nap. And so as I drove the car, I shook the child. <laughs> and I can tell you, those children were not always happy with dad 
shaking them and preventing them from falling asleep when that's exactly what they wanted to do. Sometimes they even got angry with me and interpreted what I was doing as opposed to them and mean and hateful towards them. And it's so easy when that happens to think when God does that to us to think that God is against us. But God is very much for us. He's just against us finding satisfaction in this earthly life. He knows that if we're comfortable in our lives, we'll have no reason to hope for a greater life. Remember, remember that Jesus said it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And that's because the rich person is enjoying the moment. They're not crying out for relief. They don't want things to change. They don't want to, they want to preserve the status quo. The only thing to be done in that situation is to threaten their idols and endanger their earthly security. And if God refuses to do that, maybe it means that you're not his true child. If he's just going to protect your ease and your comforts and your prosperity and, and let you float along in life, no. He, his loved ones he disciplines and he troubles their peace. He must disturb us when we, so that we don't forget the danger of the coming angel of death. So that we don't forget that our only hope is in the fact that our doors are marked with the Lamb's blood. Or we will suffer the same fate as our unbelieving neighbors. In order to prepare us for the grand new creation at the end of this book, the first four trumpets involve the old creation beginning to be systematically undone or decreated. When people depend on the world and its resources for their satisfaction, they need to be shown that ultimately these things are insecure and unstable. And so, because man has worshipped the creation instead of the creator, the creator is working against his own creation in order to ruin man's satisfaction, to ruin man's home here, to ruin people's lives, to ruin people's idols. Since mankind will not accept the light of the Word of God, God is removing their lights and plunging their world into even greater darkness. Because they reject Him, He rejects them and withdraws the light of His presence and the light of His Word. We complain about the troubles of the world. But ironically, they are in fact God's answers to our prayers when we pray, your kingdom come. And they're God's answers to our needs. Just like when the Israelites complained about the trouble stirred up by the arrival of Moses. Remember that? He showed up and he told, them to let, he told Pharaoh to let the people go, but Pharaoh said, no, I'm going to make life worse for them. 
And he did. He made life worse for for the Israelite slaves. And then they complained to Moses, you just made everything worse. It's so easy for us to do the same thing. Even though God is working to answer our prayers, we complain about the process by which he's doing it. Now, in our adult Sunday school series, which has been so wonderful, Paul David Tripp has been emphasizing the fact that all of us are interpreters. And that God in his word has given us the interpretive guide to our lives. So the issue, the important issue in life is not what's happening to us. What's happening in your life? What's happening in my life? That's God's business. The issue for us is whether we are interpreting what's happening rightly. Whether we're interpreting what's happening in our lives according to the word of God. The first four trumpets of Revelation 8, along with the stories of Jericho and the ten plagues, give us much help in understanding what's happening in the world and in our own lives. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us so much ammunition in the battle of our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to make use of these wonderful resources. And dear Lord, we pray that you would help us not to cling to life's pleasures as if we can't live without them. For Lord, we know that that you are the one we need, but our hearts just so easily turn to other things. We thank you, dear Lord, now that you have invited us to come to the table of our Lord. And Lord, it reminds us of how much we need you and how we need to be filled with you. And we come today in hunger, dear Lord. Hunger for your help. Hunger for your presence. Hunger for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would meet us here, dear Lord, because if we are with you, then we know we can do anything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.